remember that life is not a dress rehearsal. This is actually the real deal. And you can't afford to semi-engage or only half-engage with the opportunities of, of your life. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 609. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and today I am thrilled to introduce you to our guest, Aviv Shahar. Aviv is the founder and president of Aviv Consulting and the author of Create New Futures. Now, I want to let you know that Aviv is a little bit outside of our normal guest profile in that the clients that he's working with today aren't so much the solopreneurs, but actually Fortune 100 companies. I mean, there's some huge names, but as you've heard on many previous episodes of the Positive Productivity Podcast, there is no such thing as overnight success story. It's taken years to get to where I am today, to where you are today, and where Aviv is today. So with all that said, Aviv, welcome. I'm so happy that you are here, and I can't wait to dig into your story and what you do today with your clients. Glad to be with you, Kim. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I think that was actually one of the most polished introductions I've ever had. (laughs) Well, every day is a day to improve what we do, the journey to mastery is made of many steps. So I'm glad it worked out great on this show, on this episode. Oh, me too. So (laughs) I know you've had quite the journey. You started in a kibbutz in Israel, and then you joined the Israeli Air Force. You moved to America, and now you're working with Fortune 100 countries or companies. But what were some of the most impactful moments along your journey that really brought you to where you are today? Okay, it's a wonderful question. One to be talked about around the campfire, but here we are around the positive productivity campfire. The first formative moment, and by the way, this is something that I do with senior executives. I sometimes get them to trace formative moments. And I do that both in an activity I call story circles, which is an activity we engage senior teams to bring forward their core values and passion and, and purpose and and to do so by way of distilling and harvesting. I'll talk a little later about the, the, the harvesting principle, but harvesting moments of significance, what I call life-centering moments, such that those can be brought up to date and illuminate the current moment in time and, and bring the context and, and the knowledge the intelligence that they can bring to this moment and to whatever you face today. If I need to, Kim, trace to a first formative moment, that takes place around 7, 7.30. Uh, no, not 7, 7.30, 7, 7 7.5, when I go with my father to see a heart specialist because the family doctor said I should. And I'm told without that specialist even looking in my eyes, but rather looking at my dad, telling him, your son has a mild condition. He should not exert himself too much. And of course, in a child's mind, that sounded at that time almost like a 
death verdict. And we took the bus ride home on the way to the kibbutz. As you mentioned, I was born and raised in the kibbutz. And I said to my father, you know, that's not going to be, that's simply not how I will play it. I'm going to run. I'm going to run free. And why that is the first formative moment, because that was the first time where I faced what I experienced to be impossible odds. And I experienced something from welling up from the inside, a mixture of tears and a spirit of rebellion and a spirit of defiance and determination, the most powerful determination from the inside that I will not be governed by events or by messages from other people. I'm here to shape my life. Obviously, I didn't have at that age those intelligent words, but it was more an instinctual response. I love that. Sorry to interrupt you, but sure. has that carried with you through today? Oh, 100%. <laughs> because <laughs> if anybody tells me you can't do something, you better believe I'm going to try my best to prove them wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So within four years, when a couple of more visits with that specialist, but four years later, after that condition was healed, I won the long distance running championship in Israel for my age group. And it would take me 10 more years, Kim, to retrace and say, I embarked on long distance running and, and cross country running as a way of healing my condition. Just it wasn't a conscious decision. It was more guided or inspired or a spirit of defiance led form of response to the message I received. And I do think it was a character shaping experience because I knew then that sometimes you receive the most difficult messages. You're not defined by those messages. You're defined by the response that you choose to make. Wow. Can you say that again? That was huge. You're not defined by the events that you encounter in your life. You're not defined by the messages you received. You are defined by your choice of response and by what you choose to etch in your intention and character on point or sometime 10 minutes later or sometime an hour later or sometime a day later because you always have a, an opportunity to make another attempt, to rewrite and rescript and recast your experience with a new choice, with a new intention. And that is the way, by the way, the, your limbic system, your brain science works, because when you make a new choice, you are literally forming a new circuitry in your, in your brain. And now you can use that circuitry to override and superimpose previous circuitry. So when we change, when we learn new things, when we make new choices, we literally are changing the topography of our brain and of our mind. And we therefore are able to see the world differently. The second, back to your initial question, the second formative moment occurs when I am in senior year in high school and I essentially come to agreement at that point with a school principal that I'm not going to be sitting in class. There is a better way to use my time. I'm going to be sitting by myself in the library, surrounding myself with the philosophers, the thinkers, the psychology research, because I'm going to try and dedicate my senior year to writing my own dissertation. 
And and this is high school, you said? This is high school. Wow. And that was the agreement. And I remember in that dissertation, which essentially was, was a, an amateurish attempt to form a theory of everything about human motivation and go beyond Maslow, which was one of the thinkers I was studying at the time. And I remember writing in the introduction that many people my age, 17, 18, 19, are led or inspired with great internal sense and feeling about life and purpose and so on. And they then forget to remember it, even five or 10 or 15 years later, because I, I looked at that time and observed the adult world and nowhere did I find, or very rarely did I find, that sense of vibrant inner knowing that life was meaningful and purposeful in the way I've experienced it at that age. And I said, that's not going to happen to me. I am not going to be a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old like the people that I see around. This is my oath. I write this dissertation as a form of oath to myself that I will remember to remember to not veer away, to not forget the purpose journey. And, and essentially, the two decisions I made at that point, which were life-shaping life-affirming and, and life-directing decisions were, number one, that life is purposeful, that I'm purposeful, that I have a purpose, that you have a purpose, that we are here for a purpose, whether we find it within a context of a spiritual sense or a social cause or, or whatever it is that you choose to center your life around. So that's number one. And number two, that whatever I will do, wherever I will go, that permanent line, that permanent thread will not be taken away. I will not allow that to be torn apart. That will be part of the journey that, that I will weave. And I'm here to report 43 years later, because I was 60 this year, that not only did I not forget that journey, the, the purpose inquiry, and all that followed from that augmented and developed. And I have spent, in many ways, the, the 20 to 40, those 20 years on that journey, including the time in, in the Air Force, which we can talk about in a minute. And because in my mid to yeah early mid-20s, I told my wife that that was going to be number one, that was going to be priority number one, that was going to lead me. And the financial material question will just have to take care of itself as an outflow of that, rather than live the separate lives of I'm going to take care of that in one part of me. And the purpose inquiry will be just on the sidelines. So it is fair to say that this has not been the easiest path. It is also fair to say that the role models were limited and not too many of them. And I needed to shape my journey, but it just made it all ever more uh, rewarding. I love what you just said about how you told your wife your purpose took first priority and whatever came financially would come. Yeah. Because I have seen myself, like, I've seen both journeys where I focused on finances and completely forgot about purpose because, you know, finances were my one and only concern. And I've experienced in the last three years, purpose first, impact first. And I put the two together because my purpose, you know, does have impact and that whatever financial gains come as a result happen. There have been many periods where there weren't gains 
and there were actually significant losses, but the purpose was still the priority. And then my heart was happiest. So the money did follow. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Yeah. So when I was 40, around 40, 41, 42, I, I said to my wife, and by that time, I have probably reframed my purpose 15 times by that time. I said to her, now I will accomplish in 10 years what most people will take 20 or 30 years. Because at that point, when I decided to parachute to you know, the highest level of business and coach and consult and, and help leaders develop in some of the most admired companies in the world, I knew that I was bringing to that table a very rare experience that very few people in, in that space will carry. And so I knew that, that I'm able to be with a very sophisticated group of people and lean into ambiguity and uncertainty and that I have the gift to be able to read the room and to lead the choreography of the experience and, and the process in such a way that will meet their needs in not just a, a meaningful and impactful way, but in ways that will dramatically, will offer dramatic uh, results in terms of uh, return on their investment. But there again, it, it's a journey where you make a step into an uncertain, uncharted, unknown space and, and you learn and then you make the next step after that and, and so on. So my entire journey is made of one step after another, Kim, where the most important word in the English dictionary is the one I choose to say time and time again. I, do you want to guess which word I mean? There were so many words that you said, like, I'm still actually back at reframing your purpose. Yeah, but let me just not lose this thread yeah, and then please. we can go back. The most important word in the English language is a three-letter word. It's the word yes. Because when you say yes, you essentially unleash, you open the door, you unleash energy, you give yourself permission to take the next step, you give permission to whoever, whatever superpower is there from the universe to assist you. And that's why when somebody asks you, can you help with this or can you do this? The answer, the right answer in my space has always been yes, even before I knew how I will do it. There are many stories that I integrated into the book I wrote, uh, Create New Futures, where I share very openly the methods and the techniques that I use to teach and to lead innovation workshops and strategy workshops for senior teams in Fortune 100 companies, again, some of the most admired companies in the world. And there are a number of stories there where somebody said, can you do this magic thing you do with our people, but also help us develop our strategy, or but also help us design our innovation strategy? And step after step after step, my answer was always yes, because yes, I can in the sense that I have the capacity to learn what are your needs, and I, I have such a reservoir of experience and modality and know-how that I can bring to your team in such a way that will become transformational and not only will meet your needs, but will deliver perhaps even more than you imagined possible. 
because we will address multiple needs at the same time, the, the individual needs of the people on the team, the way the team operates as a unit, and the business priorities and strategies that you must implement. So all of that has developed as part of my methodology that, that I share in Creating Futures. But what I wanted to share here with you, Kim, was the essence of this is my determination to say yes to life, to say yes to opportunities, and to say yes to challenges as well, because that's how we learn. I'm finding this so fascinating because this year I've had to say goodbye to all the yeses of my past. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but significantly decrease the yeses. Because what I discovered for myself is that I was saying yes too much, and I was saying yes very often to the wrong things. Right. Well, so right there, the way I would tell the story you just shared is that you have decided your choice this year was to give yourself a new yes. Oh, I love that. And when you give yourself a new yes, oh, absolutely, you're going to have to make some other choices about what is not part of that new yes, because if you cannot allocate the resources and the focus and the energy to actually address the new yes that you produced in yourself, then it, it's not authentic. It's not a genuine yes. So I'm not the one here to advertise. You never say no. I'm saying you find the new yeses that are there to get you closer to purpose, closer to why you're here on this earth, closer to serving your purpose, closer to your goals and objectives in such a way that will produce in you a deeper and finer alignment. And when you do that by design, by definition, you're going to have to say no to all, sort, all sorts of things that you used to say yes. And what that essentially, if you look at it as a jigsaw puzzle, every time you say yes to something new, perhaps you, you're moving to a new octave, a new level of operation or of engagement, the entire cosmology of your life needs to get updated because there is a new factor. And for that factor to be integrated to your life, everything else needs to be adjusted, including some things that are, are now going to be, whether you formally put them on the sideline or at least you choose to not visit them as often, that's a choice you make. But that's the journey of self-updating as you move from one opportunity to the next. That's such an important point to make. I mean, every yes requires a no somewhere else. And I love how you said the new yeses. And that really, it was scary to decide that I had to redefine my yeses because there was a little bit of hesitation. If I don't say yes to this, am I going to miss out on a future opportunity that I want? But then I realized that by saying yes to the wrong things, and wrong may be too strong of a word, but it's the one I'm going to go with. I could have been attracting more of the wrong things. So yeah, let's redefine yes, make sure that it's totally in alignment with my purpose. Because when I do that, more things that are in line with my purpose will come. But with that said, if you don't mind, I want to backtrack to what you said about, I don't think you said redefined, but you had realigned your purpose multiple times. What did that journey look like for you? Let me get there, but I don't want to miss something you just said. Because you talked for a minute there about fear. And this is such an important element that we shouldn't leave out of the conversation. Because fear is a powerful energy and people do all sorts of things for a variety of fear-related reasons. 
fear of missing out on an opportunity, fear of what others will think of me and, and what will they say. And I'd like to propose that when you engage with a purpose-guided, purpose-inspired journey, and even if you didn't call it a purpose, when you are developing a strategy and you want to reach mastery in a certain domain, then there are five fuels, five energies that you need to consider. And I'll just put this here as a, as a placeholder, restread to your question, and we'll pick on the other end of the purpose journey and the, the reframing of purpose, the idea of the five energies, because I've had to engage those various energies when I inquired into my purpose. Hey there, my friend. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. I wanted to take a quick moment to invite you to join the Work Smarter, Not Harder Challenge. Over the course of 30 days, these free, yes, free, short videos will teach you a few of the systems and strategies I set up in my business so I can get away from my computer and back to the people I love. I invite you to sign up now at WorkSmarterNotHarderChallenge.com. Again, you can sign up at WorkSmarterNotHarderChallenge.com. Earlier on, say when I was uh, 19, 18, 19, 20, my purpose was to find what my purpose was. And I wrote it as such. I wanted to understand what my purpose was. And I wanted to understand what my unique individual purpose was within the broader consideration of, is there a way to think about human purpose as to why we humans are here on earth? And what is the evidence that I'll be able to find to support that? Which is why I studied, you know, comparative religions and explored many spiritual paths to acquire the know-how and, and the practice and the knowledge that's available in those various spaces as I was shaping my own journey. And then as time moved on, it was clear to me that I am here to do something with people. And I then, my purpose kept on one stage after another, going through one update to the next. And there was a time when my purpose was to help people find their purpose and core values. And I did a whole, I developed a whole body of work around that some 20, 25 years ago. And that's the work I used to do in the corporate arena in, in the early days. I took people through a four or five day retreats and essentially senior executives said, yeah, please do this with our people, fly this under the radar. And we know that 19 people will find the purpose and, and core values and will come back to work even more passionate about the work they do in this company. And one person will have an epiphany and will choose to leave the company. And that's quite all right by us. I've, I've had a leader that said that to me as he continued to support and sponsor my work with his teams over six years. And so when you look today at the work I do today, then what I do today is, is help senior executives and help senior leaders create new futures, by which I mean create a new business future, create a new organizational future, and create your individual and personal future within that by describing and envisioning and directing your strategy and your behavior in a way that will lead to those results, those future states that you aspire to create. And as we design those journeys, 
I encourage them to be reflective on the why. Why are these your objectives? Why is this your purpose? What is it that drives you there? And so this is where I come to the five fuels or the five energy scheme, because sure, pain and fear can be a fuel. And my encouragement, if you find that you are responding to a lesser fear, a lesser fear is fear of missing out on an opportunity tomorrow or a fear of what someone else will think of me, then place right next to it another more superior fear, which is how will you feel 20, 30, 40 years from now if you looked at your life and you recognized that you failed to follow a sense of a bigger, more important calling or service you were here to to respond to. That makes my stomach hurt just yeah. thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. But then there are other energies because we don't just need to be driven by fear. There is the second fuel is the fuel of passion and the fuel of reward and the fuel of I'm excited by this challenge and the results that I'll be able to create. That is an energy release that will allow us to step, you know, across challenges and, and overcome obstacles. And then there is the third, perhaps even more powerful energy or fuel is the one that we talked about a minute ago, which is serving a cause. So finding the cause, finding the purpose, finding the mission, articulating the vision that you're here to realize and allowing yourself to feel into that space. And so much that you, you'll be able to say this cause or this belief or this endeavor inspires me to be the best that I can be. And to overcome my fear, to overcome my insecurities, to overcome all the obstacles, because as I imagine that future state, as I imagine the, the purpose I'm here to serve, as I imagine the teams I'm working with, as I imagine the senior leaders that will be energized and excited about their ability to shape the marketplace, as I imagine these, these outcomes and these results, I'm able to overcome all the obstacles and all the concerns that I have. The fourth energy is the team energy. And whether it's a team in the context of a company, which I often encourage and, and help teams unleash, or whether somebody working for themselves, so you might have a mastermind group or a buddy or accountability circle, there too, you could find a way to be driven by that team, by that group, and let them hold you accountable to the future you're all looking to create individually and all together. And the fifth and fourth zero fuel is structure, structure of support. You must be very methodical in terms of designing the environment around you to offer you the support, the tools to create the accountability, to help you build the reinforcer such that you progress every day towards your goals and your objectives in small and, and large ways. So these are just very important fuels to consider. And if you go to my website, Aviv Consulting, and you look at free resources, you'll find the key, the newsletter, and you'll search over the last years two specific articles, one called Journey into Mastery and, and the five fuels, I believe, that propel mastery. And I talk there with details about these and what they mean and how to shape, indeed, the journey that you want to create for yourself such that you reach mastery in the area and in the space, in the domain that's more meaningful for you. 
I love every single little part of that. I was glad I was muted while you were talking because when you were talking about creating the environment, and I know my apologies, I'm not trying to make a joke out of it, but I was thinking, I just want to have a soundproof room with a lock that my kids can't get into (laughs) so I can create the content that I want to fulfill my purpose more. But that is so, like, I know that was not where you were going with it. Well, your kids are a part of the spice of your life. I have one son and I've been working all these years from my home office and I've found when he's now 30 and leading his own uh, startup company, um, when he was in, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, that age, I developed a practice, which was that if he walked into my office and asked a question, I'll try to provide undivided attention for a few minutes because this was my opportunity to engage with him in, in conversation. So they make us better. I know you have five. That That is a bigger job than any other job. But then again, it's a choice and your mastery may just be your capacity to choreograph and orchestrate your life with so much on your plate, including being there for your five children. Well, they have definitely shaped my purpose, definitely, because I realized that when I was chasing money, there was not time for them at all. And pardon the screaming in the background, if you or listeners heard it, they're beating up on each other right now. But I realized, you know, I was tired of, and I, yes, I did have mama guilt because I kept on saying, no, I can't go to this soccer game. No, I can't go to this orchestra concert because I was always in pursuit of the next dollar. And then it started to shift when I started going to this, you know, the soccer tournaments and the concerts and started saying yes to when I started reshaping my yeses, then the consequences of the no's really weren't as bad as I feared. Well, exactly. And which brings me to, I promise we'll talk a little bit about the harvesting principle. Are you familiar with the harvesting principle of development and innovation? I am not. I can't wait to hear it. Well, so in the simplest way to understand and and explain it through a concrete example, when you look at the evolution of product evolution in our company, so many of us have enjoyed the kind of consumer electronics that they brought to market. If you look at, at their journey, if you didn't have the iPod, you didn't have the iPhone. So the technology, the touch technology that was developed to enable the iPod enabled the development, the innovation and development of the iPhone. And the technology that they developed for the iPhone then obviously brought to market the iPad. But that's true in innovation and is also the case in the human development journey. Because even if you just sang with Steve Jobs for a minute, when he tells the story of getting bored during his university years and deciding out of the blue to to take calligraphy class. And it is him going to calligraphy class that ultimately brought to us the rich fonts we now have. We, you know, possibly you could say, well, we would get to fonts later, but maybe 10 years later, maybe 20 years later, it was Steve Jobs early in the computing revolution that had an eye and an interest in the beauty of fonts, which shaped that space. So the harvesting principle in innovation and development points to the recognition that there is something you're doing right now that you don't necessarily find how it's to do with your purpose 
and what it will do for you in the future. But if you stay attuned inside, and if you have good reasons to do why you do what you do, then more likely than not, in small or in large way, the endeavor, the effort of your particular activity or anything you do can be harvested tomorrow to something you will be called to do next month, next year, or the year after. And, and let me give you two powerful examples. Oh, I can't wait to hear these. Think about Gandhi, possibly the father of modern India. Without him first studying in Britain, in, in, in England, to become attorney and, and to understand law and the tradition of English law, there is no way he would be able to negotiate on behalf of India with the British four or five decades later. It's almost as though, let's just play here, we can go metaphysical for a second on your podcast, correct? That, that's all right, correct? Oh, absolutely. Well, so let's imagine that there is a future state of India, which is an independent India like the one we have today. And that future state of India is looking to find the vessel through which it will be able to conduct its agenda and unleash its journey to become an independent and to come to do so on agreed to terms with the British Empire at the time and with the complexity that was playing at that time. Well, it will need somebody who understand the mentality of the Brits, who understand British law and understand their culture. But it will need something more than that. It will need somebody who have experienced nonviolent resistance. And so Gandhi goes and he is practicing law and, and he is leading in South Africa through a significant period of time, helping people to address their needs and shape their struggle. And he's going through a formatory phase and this entire experience of him practicing law and as an attorney in, in South Africa is part of the shaping of his character, but also the shaping of his know-how to later come back to India and harvest the entirety of that experience to lead the kind of non-violent resistance that he is leading in India, ultimately enabling the independent India that would come to be. So, wow. okay, you don't have to be a Gandhi. I don't have to be a Gandhi. Even though I, <laughs> you know, I can see clearly the, the harvesting principle in my life. But how about if I share with you another example about John Paul II? Yes, please. John Paul II, the first pope of the TV media age, okay? What are we looking at? We're looking at an extraordinary story where what is he doing during the Second World War? He is part of an underground group that is practicing to play on stage, and they go from one place to another as an underground team, and they play various shows, various acts, to various plays to cheer people up. And the story goes that he is recognized by his peers at the time to be very talented in commanding people's attention and in speaking on stage in a way that will produce presence and will portray the character that he plays with tremendous conviction and power. And his circle of friends at the time 
anticipated that he will make an extraordinary career you know, as, as an actor in the theater. But later, I think around 1819, his choice is to go into the seminary. And then for a good number of years, his, the focus of his engagement in the church is, is actually working with youth, with young people. So all that experience of being on stage and engaging youth and, and inspiring and motivating them, you now move 20 or 30 or 40 years later to that momentous election that was going on in the Vatican. And I want you to imagine for a minute that if there is an invisible essence that represents the power of the papacy waiting, that's the one to be represented by white smoke, waiting for the new pope to be elected, then Imagine now that he's walking these few steps to the balcony to first show him, first time show himself to the world as, as the new pope. Then that essence, that power, finds him to be very suitable at that point as a pope because he already is a trained actor. He already has ways to command the stage. And he walks into the balcony and he is beginning and launching the greatest act of his life, which lasted multiple decades as the Pope that will command the TV medium to reach thousands of people all around the world. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm born and raised uh, in Israel. I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I took interest to these stories because I'm interested in the human story and in the way we can all harvest in small and large way our experiences into what we're called to do today and tomorrow. I am so intrigued by all of this because, well, I'll just tell you in 2015 or 2016, I met a client who I still work with today. And I started working with him after I had actually purchased one of his products. And one of the things that came along with the product was a 15 minute call. So I explained that I was trying to do in my business and, and he questioned me. And at that time, I didn't have an answer for why I was doing what I was doing. Fast forward a year, and listeners, you can go back to it. I'll put some episodes in the show notes. But fast forward a year, and I had sleep-deprived anxiety and depression so bad that I was ready to kill myself. And when I came out of that, let me just tell you that what I was trying to leave was the marketing automation work that I had been doing for a couple years. And I wanted to focus on positive productivity, but I didn't have a why. It was very fluffy, and I just didn't know the substance behind it yet. But then after I went through my own sleep deprivation, and I realized I didn't have my support or system set up properly, all of it pieced itself together. But had I not gone through my own burnout, like severe burnout like that, then the brand wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah, Kim, some of the reasons people get burnt out uh, is because they are displaced from their capacity to listen inside and because they operate with a sense of anxiety and low self-esteem that they they're not good enough and what they have to offer is is insufficient and this can easily be a vicious circuit we now operate in a time and in an environment where you're forever bombarded with stimuli from the outside and with images and demands and expectations, and it's so easy to lose the capacity to listen inside. I talk to the teams I work with about the four levels of listening. The first level is 
when you don't actually listen, it's your, when you're on a conference call and you, you're doing something else, that's not really listening. The second level is when you listen only cerebrally, when you want to lead the witness to a certain specific answer you're looking for. The third level of listening is when you listen to emotions and to energy. But the fourth level of listening is where you, you listen with presence. You are fully present in the listening. You, you're a whole person, in whole person listening. And it's when you actually create a space that powers and empowers the other person. But I've recently started to talk about the fifth level of listening, which is about listening to yourself listening. Because if you can't listen to yourself listening, then you, are, you may be listening from, not from your core, but from somewhere outside of you, thinking you ought to be or that you should be somebody other than who you are. And you're not actually connected to your own roots. So what you have now is an epidemic of anxiety, epidemic of fatigue, epidemic of depression, because people are not connected to themselves, not connected to their lives. And it's an interesting double helix you, <laughs> or double somersault. You've got to connect to yourself. You have to connect to your reason and purpose as to why you're here. To connect to the reason and purpose as to why you're here, you must connect to yourself, to your life. You need to have both ends of that continuum or else something is missing. I'm, I'm actually, listeners, you know I love my husband more than anything, but I'm, you actually have me thinking about an argument that we had the other day. And I told him, I said, I don't feel like you're listening to me. You're listening, but only to come up with what you're going to say next. Yeah. And then on the flip side, along with what you were just saying, like I was sort of listening, but I was also listening to myself more than I was listening to him. It was just a big battle of not listening. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, at the risk of turning your podcast show to, to marriage counseling, which I could do even though I don't do it professionally, yeah. I'll simply say there are techniques that we can employ to step back from the zone of reactivity where we get heated and uh, where we tend to start throwing things at each other, first words and then actually physical objects, and where we practice listening and paraphrasing what the other person is saying and where you make the space for each person to say all that they want to say. And then you paraphrase what you heard and then you reverse role and they listen to you. And that's a practice that requires courage and determination. And uh, sometime, a lot of the time you'd need help. You'd need the presence of a third person, a therapist or a counselor to do that but you can actually develop that together as two people. And that happens when two people decide that they love what they can become tomorrow, even more than they love showing that they are right, or even more that they love the possibility of tomorrow and the emergence of a new day more than they love the pain of yesterday. That's choice. Wow. That's so huge. Actually, I, Saya Nasi was a previous guest of the Positive Productivity Podcast, and over the course of our relationship, she taught me a lot about nonviolent communication. Yeah. So, yeah, I absolutely love that. Now, I know, like, we're already so far into this episode, I think we might have to have a part two, but could you share a little bit more about what you do today and where listeners can find you online and connect? I am today mostly work with senior teams 
as we said, in, in the Fortune 500 companies, some, some smaller startup companies in, in the Valley, Silicon Valley. I am also now venturing into some new activities because I'm at the point in my life where I'm ready to find the half a dozen or dozen 25 to 35 bright individuals who would want to, this is not me practicing ageism. I just want to be surrounded by young people that would be interested to acquire and take my experience and learn to do what I do in, in their way through their genius. And that, that was inspired because one such bright individual approached me with that very question. So that that's just a new adventure that I'm embarking on now. People can find more about this and all that I do at avivconsulting.com. They can get access to my regular newsletter that they can find on my website. They can also on my website find my podcast show that uh, goes by the name Create New Futures, as is the name of my book, Create New Futures, which they can find on Amazon in all forms, including Audible with my Hebrew accent. <laughs> and Amazing. Love it. That I read myself. And they can also find me at Aviv Consulting or with my name on LinkedIn. So that's where they can find me. And I'm very happy. It does look like we ran out of time. If you wanted at some point to do part two and, and get to the dozen oh, other things we didn't definitely. get to on this one. Yeah, no. because there is a wealth in everything that we didn't get to today. So thank you. And for listeners, I would actually like to invite you to go to thekimsutton.com forward slash PP609 to leave comments and questions that you would like us to address in the part two, as well as any ahas that you have had. You'll also find there the links, all of the links that Aviva's talked about. So don't feel like you need to risk your driving or anything or your dinner if you're trying to cook to write those down. That is all for you in one place. But Aviv, thank you so much. You've inspired me tremendously during just this one call. I can't wait to have a part two. But off of part one, do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you could leave the listeners with? I do. I do <laughs> remember that life is not a dress rehearsal. This is actually the real deal. And you can't afford to semi-engage or only half-engage with the opportunities of, of your life. I've always felt that the mastery of life, the art of life, is to respond to the opportunities that are in front of you today and to respond to these in the fullest possible way, because we can make plans from here until we're blue in the face and next year and beyond. The greatest adventures and opportunities of your life, they are available right where you are, right next to you. You may be seeing some of them. You may not be seeing some of them. They may appear as challenges or, or even as setbacks. And my encouragement is look at those opportunities and challenges. And ask yourself, what would be the most thrilling outcome for me in addressing this, whether it's a problem or a challenge, an obstacle or an opportunity? And begin from the future state. What would be the most thrilling outcome? What is the desired future that will energize me most? And begin to work backward from that future state and do so fully and engage with that moment in time by being fully present 
And my experience, if you do so and you apply yourself diligently, miracles will happen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. Bye.